read the Word of God this evening in the second chapter of the prophecy of Amos. We begin at verse 6. Our text this evening is made up of verses 9 through the end, and so I ask that you pay special attention to verses 9 through 16 as we read the passage. Amos 2, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above, and his roots from beneath. Also, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Behold, I am pressed under you, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Thus far we read the word of God. The sins with which Israel has been charged in verses 6 through 8 are transgressions against table of all of them are sins that Israelites commit against their neighbor Israelites and that the rulers in Israel tolerate. Here, God begins with his charge against his people. And it is on account of this that God threatens judgment against her. These transgressions are not sins against the first table of the law. They are not sins that are done directly against God himself. There is good reason why the prophet begins here with Israel's transgressions 
against the second table of the law. That reason, of course, is not that Israel goes scot-free as regards sins against the first table. As every schoolboy knows, the fundamental sin of the ten tribes was their breaking of the second commandment by the creation and worship of graven images, the golden calves which the first Jeroboam set up. Neither, of course, is it the case that God specifies their sins against the second table because sins against the, the neighbor are more serious than sins against him himself. The fact of the matter is that Israel sins against the neighbor Israelite stem from their apostasy from God, stem from their transgression of the first table of the law of God. But the reason, rather, is this, that God knows that if the prophet begins by condemning them for their transgression of the first table of the law, Israel will vehemently protest that his accusation of them is unfounded. We see in the chapter that Israel continues to be religious. Israel continues to keep up, even zealously, the rituals and formalities of the worship of God in the temple. But it has become undeniably plain in the life of Israel that she is transgressing the second table of the law. She will not be able to deny, she will not be able to protest that the prophet is unjust in his accusation of her. In Israel's transgression against the neighbor Israelite, her apostasy from God has become clearly, undeniably manifest. And so the prophet begins there. It is plain that by their sins against the neighbor Israelite, particularly the weak and the poor and the uninfluential and the defenseless, it's plain that by their sins against each other, the people of Israel have transgressed against God himself. That's plain in the verses that precede. That's plain, first of all, in verse 7. There the prophet says that the Israelites were committing fornication. A man and his father went into the same maid, and there he accuses them of abusing the poor servant girl. But he says that when they did that, they profaned God's holy name. 
There are other ways to profane God's holy name than by doing this directly in worshiping graven images or cursing or perjury or violation of the Sabbath commandment. Also, when the seventh commandment is transgressed. Also, when a poor servant girl is abused. The holy name of God is profane. That by their sins against each other, the people of Israel were transgressing against God is also plain from verse 8. There, the prophet has written, has charged, that the Israelites were sleeping on the clothes that had been taken in pledge from poor Israelites who had become indebted to them. He mentions that they were lying down on these clothes and sleeping on them overnight by their altars and in their temples. And then the prophet says, that as far as God is concerned, they are doing this in the house of their God. That's a significant statement. It is plain from that verse how callous the Israelites were. They could be guilty of the most horrible abuse of their lowly neighbor and still go on carrying out the formalities of religious worship. But we must not be too severe upon the people of Israel because it is easy for us to do the same thing. We may be living in hatred and strife with our brother or sister in the church, and yet we come to church and to the worship services and to the Lord's Supper as though nothing were the matter and as though God certainly will be pleased with our ritual of worship and receive it. And certainly as far as the thinking of those Israelites was concerned, that temple in which they were doing this was the temple of Jehovah God. They professed to be worshiping Jehovah. But as far as God is concerned, that temple is the temple not of himself, but the temple of their God, some idol or other. He cannot be worshipped by those who are going on in abuse of one of the members of his church. He cannot be worshipped by those who oppress the poor and lowly among his people. Our transgressions against the second table are offensive God himself. And now what makes that transgression of Israel so serious is that by this transgression they are despising the riches of God's goodness. That's the idea of the words of our text. After Jehovah has listed the four transgressions of Israel. He adds that their transgression is aggravated and made enormous by the fact that they are despising the riches of his goodness. 
There can be no comparison between the cruelty of the heathens towards Israel and each other and the cruelty of Israel. For when Israel sins, it sins against the riches of the goodness of God. That, of course, is Paul's phrase in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He speaks there of despising the riches of the goodness of God. I call your attention tonight to our text under that theme, despising the riches of his goodness. The riches of the goodness of God to Israel consist, according to our text, of three great deeds that God has done for the people of Israel. The first of those deeds of goodness is that he gave them entrance into the land of Canaan. The prophet refers to that in verse 9 when he says, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. It refers to the entrance of Israel into the promised land hundreds of years before this under Joshua. The Amorite was one of the nations that inhabited Canaan at the time that the people of Israel arrived at the borders of that land. They were one of the nations of the Canaanites. Because the Amorite was the most powerful and prominent of the tribes here, as elsewhere in Scripture, the Amorites must stand for all of the nations of Canaan. That land was theirs. They lived there. They had developed it. But if the people of Israel was to inherit that land and live there, the Amorite must be destroyed from before Israel. By the destruction of the Amorite, therefore, God brings the people of Israel into that land and gives that land to them as their home. That, first of all, is the goodness of God to Israel. And what a goodness it was. That nation and people, that wandering nation that didn't have so much as a piece of ground to set their foot on now has a home a goodly home where they may live with their families and carry out the normal activities of human behavior, but above all, where they might do all this in fellowship with God in the enjoyment of his blessing and praising his name in that country. In order to do that, in order to give the entrance into the land of Canaan, God had to bring them up out of the land of Egypt where that people lay hopelessly enslaved of Pharaoh. And of course, to that the prophet refers in verse 10, when he says, Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt. He refers to that great deliverance of Israel some 40 years before God destroyed the Amorite, worked through Moses, and accomplished by the ten plagues in Egypt, by the miracle of 
the bringing of Israel through the Red Sea. Not only was that a deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, but it was also a redemption of that nation from Egypt. Not simply was that nation brought out of Egypt, but that nation was also bought out of Egypt. And that was shown the night of the last plague in the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb as a type and figure of the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God to redeem God's people out of sin and death. Such was the goodness of God to Israel. He brought them out with a mighty hand who were languishing and dead, really, in Egypt. And he brought them out by the purchase price of his own precious son, Jesus Christ. To that deliverance out of Egypt belongs God's preservation of the nation during the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. And to that the prophet refers in the last part of verse 10 when he adds, and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. God cared for Israel during those 40 years in wonderful ways. He fed them with the manna from heaven. He gave them water out of the rock. He led them with the cloudy and fiery pillar. Their shoes did not wear out. And all the while that he was caring for them in the wilderness, he was leading them to the certain goal of the land of Canaan. They did not merely wander, but they were led to the land of Canaan. And even the 40 years of time were years in which the Lord was preparing them so that they could inhabit that goodly land as his people. This was the goodness of God to Israel. Striking, beloved, and worthy of our most careful attention is the third deed of goodness that the prophet lists in our text. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. At first, that strikes us as a deed that does not rank with the great deeds of the Exodus and the entrance of the people of Israel into Canaan. And yet God ranks this deed right along with those two of the greatest of all of God's deeds in the Old Testament times. Israel was inclined to minimize of that deed of God, as we shall see in a moment. Just as the church today often is inclined to minimize a comparable deed on her behalf. But God does not minimize this deed of himself. I brought you into the land. I brought you out of Egypt. And I raised up prophets and Nazarites 
out of your own sons and young men. By the way, it strikes us as we read this that the prophet speaks of the sons and the young men from whom God raised up prophets and Nazarites. Now we know that occasionally there was a woman who was a prophet. And one of the main chapters on the Nazarites in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, even speaks of men and women possibly being Nazarites. And yet, that was the exception even in the Old Testament. So that when the prophet looks back over that history, he speaks of God's raising up men, or of God's raising up prophets and Nazarites from the sons and young men of the people of Israel. The offices were to be occupied by the men in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. But that, by the way, we're concerned to know who these prophets were and these Nazarites and what their function was in Israel. The prophets were those who spoke the word of God to the people of Israel. They proclaimed the gospel of his redemptive love. They instructed Israel in God's will for their lives. They admonished the people when they saw them departing from God and his laws. And they exhorted them to fear God and keep his commandments. Israel was blessed with prophets. Israel of the ten tribes was blessed with prophets. You think immediately of two of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah and Elisha, their ministry was in the ten tribes of Israel. And we know from the history that there were also schools of the prophets in the ten tribes. God was not skimpy in giving prophets to the people. Nazarites were a little different. Nazarites were persons who stood out in Israel as visible signs of the separation of Israel from the wicked world and of the consecration of Israel to God in holiness of life. By a vow, a special vow, these persons consecrated themselves to God as his special holy servants. To show their special position, they had to observe certain rules, and we have to know what those rules were if we're going to appreciate the sin of Israel with regard to her Nazarites. We learn of those rules by which the Nazarites showed their special position in the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers, the first part, among other places in the Pentateuch. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. And then five, all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. Especially did he have to abstain from wine and from cutting his hair or his... Those things would be outward signs of his position as a specially consecrated, holy to the Lord 
servant of God. And the significance of the Nazarite is pointed out in verse 8 of number 6. All the days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord. He was a walking reminder and a living, breathing exhortation to Israel of what she really was and of what she must be, a people characterized by holiness to the Lord. And since holiness is always expressed by obedience to God's law, the Nazarite was a reminder of and an exhortation unto obedience to the law of God. Now God ranks his raising up of prophets and Nazarites right along with the two great redemptive acts of the Old Testament, the Exodus and the entrance into the Promised Land, because through the prophet and his preaching and through the Nazarite and his visible testimony to Israel's holiness, the meaning of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and of his bringing of Israel into the Promised Land, the meaning of those acts of God is bound upon the consciousness of Israel and they enjoy what God really did for them in the exodus and the entrance into Canaan. What did that all mean, that God brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land? It meant that Israel is the special people of God who is to be friends with God and servants of God in holiness in the land of Canaan. This was the goodness of God to Israel. Oh, the riches of the goodness of God to that people. All of that goodness was the goodness of pure grace, emphasized by God in our text, is that these deeds of goodness on Israel's behalf were pure, sovereign grace. Note that, beloved. You note that, first of all, in the heavy emphasis upon I in the text, yet destroyed I the Amorite from before them. I destroyed him root and branch. I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I raised up of your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. That's made even sharper in the original Hebrew. The pronoun I usually in Hebrew is part of the verb, but when God wants to emphasize that I, then he adds a certain word all by itself that means I, so that it is as if the Lord is saying here, Israel, I and I only have done these deeds of goodness on your behalf. Israel did not do them, but God did them. And God did not do them for Israel because Israel deserved to have them done but simply because of the free favor that he had people. In fact, it was utterly impossible that Israel should accomplish these things. They could not destroy the Amorite because the Amorite was as tall as the cedar tree 
and destroy a powerful nation that Israel could not dislodge. Israel could not bring herself out of the land of Egypt. She was a slave there under the legions of Pharaoh. Nor could Israel produce Nazarites or prophets. Israel's memory must have testified to the truth of this. They remembered how in the entrance into Canaan, the waters of the Jordan separated for Joshua and the people. How the walls of Jericho fell down before Israel. How on a day the sun and the moon stood still in God's universe so that God's people might carry out the destruction of their enemies. They remembered the wonders in the wilderness. They remembered the mighty acts of God in Egypt and at the Red Sea. God was gracious to his people. That grace was a discriminating grace. I said a moment ago that God emphasizes the I of our text. It is equally true that he emphasizes the you of our text. Also I brought up from the land of Egypt you. There is election and reprobation in the text. Divine sovereign election, divine sovereign reprobation. Don't you see that? I destroyed the Amorite from before you so that you might have their land. I destroyed them in my sovereign good pleasure according to my rejection of them in sovereignty and that reprobation of the Amorites serves the election of my people that you might have their land to live there with me. You only, says God in chapter 3, O children of Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Verse 2. The grace of his goodness is illustrated and emphasized by his rejection and destruction of the wicked nations. These deeds of goodness come from God's love for Israel. In love he chose the nation. In love he redeemed her out of Egypt. And in love he brought her into the promised land. This word of God in our text throbs with the love of God for his people. Don't you hear that? When he turns to the people directly and says, Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel? That is, not only isn't it true, every word that I am saying, but also is not all of this testimony to my grace and love toward you, my people. Such, beloved, are the riches of the goodness of God to us as a Reformed Protestant church in the world today. At the Reformation, God brought us out of the terrible bondage of the lie into the liberty of the truth of the gospel of his grace, 
out of the bondage of slavery to the will of a hierarchy and into the liberty of submission to and holiness according to the word of God. In the course of subsequent history, he maintained that great deliverance when he brought our fathers out of the apostate church in Holland and even in our own history when he gave us a separate existence as a denomination of churches and preserved us in that truth of his word. He delivered us. He brought us into the covenant union with himself so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. We have a, a place, glorious place, as a reformed church of Jesus Christ in the world. That stems ultimately from the great deliverance that he worked for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the work of the Holy Spirit to gather us as a church, to know God, which is eternal life. He also has raised up prophets and Nazarites, in a way, out of our own sons, men who speak his word, applying the redemption of the cross and the freedom and prosperity of the knowledge of God, and men who also point us and set examples for a walk of holiness. And this is all of pure grace. He destroyed mighty enemies to set us free with this liberty that we have at the Reformation and in subsequent history, and especially in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amorites as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, he destroyed root and branch. We didn't do it. He did it. He did it not because we deserved a jot or a tittle of it, but in his free favor with which he was gracious to it, to us. Is it not so, O ye children of the church? That's the claim that God has upon Israel. That's why God may and does call Israel to obey his law and will. The claim that he has upon that nation is not simply the claim of sovereignty, but it's the claim of the sovereignty of grace. It's not simply the claim that he has because he's God, but it's the claim that he has because he's the God who has loved this people and delivered this people and cared for this people and brought this people into friendship with himself. That's his claim. It's something like that in earthly life. Parents have a claim upon their children that nobody else can possibly have. It's the claim of parental love. It's the claim of parental care. It's the, it's the claim of a love that desires the welfare of these children. That's why sometimes when a son or daughter gets old and walks in the ways of wickedness, when all of the rest of us finally stand aside, then a parent will go in to press his claim. He will pursue that child, and he will do whatever has to be done to bring that child 
to confront the demands of the word and law of God. That's the claim of parents. So here, God's claim upon Israel is the claim of his grace towards that nation. This is why, too, when Israel transgresses God's commandments, they profane his holy name, as no heathen nation can ever do. This people is his people, and he is their God. His name is bound up with this people and their life. And when then they walk as the world walks, as the Amorites lived, when a man and his father go into the same maid, and when they oppress the poor and the downtrodden among themselves, God's name is at stake. God's name is made common. God's name is defiled. The sin of Israel, expressed by their disobedience, to the second table of the law is that they despised the riches of the goodness of his grace, that they despised the covenant of God and turned away from and forgot the God of their salvation. But, oh, that dreadful but of verse 12. But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Israel despised God and his goodness when they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. When they turned aside the right of the meek, When they abused the servant girl, when they kept the clothing of their debtors, they despised the goodness of God. But the worst of it, by far, was what they did, according to verse 12. That's far, far worse than the transgressions with which they are charged in verses 6 through 8. Let's understand that. He gave the Nazarites wine to drink. They compromised the Nazarite. A wine-drinking Nazarite is a ruined Nazarite. A Nazarite who isn't good for his purpose anymore, who doesn't stand in the midst of Israel as a living, breathing walking reminder of an exhortation to holiness. The prophet who may prophesy what good in the world is that kind of a prophet. Note well, they didn't say to Israel, we learn from other prophecies, don't speak anymore. No, they would let the prophet speak smooth things, deceitful things, things that didn't pinch them. But they said, prophesy not. That is, don't bring the word of God anymore to us. Shut up as regards the word of God. And the reason for this, the reason why they gave the Nazarites wine to drink and told the prophets not to prophesy, was that Israel was opposed 
to holiness of life in obedience to the commandments of God. You notice they didn't object to the deliverance out of Egypt or the entrance into the land of Canaan. They would confess those great deeds. They would even claim to fits of those great deeds of God in their history, but they objected to and opposed the Nazarites and the prophets. Christ walked in their midst as a visible sign of holiness. When Israel was walking in unholiness of light, that Nazarite was an accusation against them, a condemnation of their life. And they said, how can we compromise this Nazarite? We know we'll make him drink wine, and then he's no longer a testimony to holiness, to bother our consciences and to point us and call us to a holy walk of life. It was when the prophets came condemning their sins, pointing out their errors and disobedience, and exhorting the people of Israel to keep the commandments of God that they were breaking. It was then that Israel said, Now be quiet. Don't speak to us about our sin. Don't speak to us of a holy walk of life. And the seriousness of that was that when they did that, they were despising not only the Nazarite and the prophet, but they were despising the exodus and the entrance into Canaan. God brought them out of Egypt into Canaan to be a holy people, to serve him and be friends with him in holiness of life. When they opposed and despised holiness of life, the purpose of their deliverance, then they were in reality despising their deliverance itself and the covenant of God. church today doesn't do anything like that, does it? The visible church that has the name Protestant wouldn't do something like that, would it? To ask the question is to answer it. The church at large professes to believe the redemption of the cross, and the gift of eternal life in heaven, but disobeys God's commandments, not only by tolerating disobedience to the Ten Commandments of God's law, but by decreeing that the church need not feel herself bound by God's will set forth in Scripture. The visible church sometimes compromises her Nazarites. God raises up men in the church will give an example of holiness of life, of careful obedience to the law of God, and women too, for that matter. And then the visible church mocks at these people and says, look at these pious ones, these holier-than-other people, these people who think that they're better than everybody else. They ridicule our separation from the filth the corruption of the walk of the world in which we live. The visible church sometimes 
shuts the mouths of her prophets, too. A preacher of the gospel who preaches the law of God sharply, applying to the lives of the people God's commandments from Scripture, and office bearers who enforce the demands of the law of God with discipline, are hated and opposed by the visible church. Ways to do that to the preacher. One way is not to listen to his admonition and exhortation when that admonition and exhortation is to oneself. It's, a, it's an amazing thing how members of the church can do that. They hear only the condemnation of sin in others that they like because they think it applies to others. And the exhortation and admonition that apply to our sins, we're oblivious to. We don't hear them. It's as if he's not talking anymore. We shut him off. That's one way. But what we're doing is we're shutting up the prophet. And again, when the prophet steps on our toes, we become furiously angry with him. And we say, undoubtedly, that's because he has a grudge against us. That's undoubtedly because of something personal between him and me. We refuse to see whether the word of God is saying what he is saying and to allow for his claim that he comes not out of any personal malice, but that he comes only as the bearer of the word of God. And we like it when he condemns the sins that we like to condemn. Maybe we're happy with him when he preaches against sexual immorality and divorce and remarriage and whatnot out there in the world. But what about when he preaches the demands of the second table of the law as the prophet Amos insists upon them in verses 6 through 9, the will of God that we love one another, that we not deal unrighteously and harmfully with each other, that we not destroy each other, that we not oppress the lowly and the downcast. And then it's not unheard of that the prophet is cast out of the church or otherwise that there is a campaign in order to undermine the position of the preacher in the church. And it isn't unheard of in the visible church either that it's put to him straight in his face. Let these sins and weaknesses go, or you won't survive in the congregation. And still today, the visible church says to the prophets, prophesy not. How foolish. How foolish. How unthankful of us. How wicked, how God-dishonoring. And so God will uphold the honor of his own great name by severe judgment upon his people. And that judgment of God to Israel begins already in verse 13 of our text. There's a text you will question there. Our translation has, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Undoubtedly, the proper translation would be, I am pressing you down as a cart presses down 
that is full of sheaves. God, in his judgment, oppresses the people of Israel, brings evil upon them because of their silencing of his prophets and compromising of his Nazarites and despising of the holiness of his covenant. And what that judgment of God is, is brought out then in verses 14 to the end of the chapter, which is a description of a great war and battle that shall break out upon the ten tribes of Israel, in which they shall be defeated, and the bravest of them shall be scattered abroad by their foe. A reference ultimately in history destruction of the ten tribes of Israel. Severe is this God of grace when the riches of his goodness despised. Oh, severe is he in his judgment. Paul says in Romans 11 that he was so severe to the nation of Israel, this very nation, that that nation is cut off from the olive tree. The nation perishes. But does this mean that God's grace is frustrated? Paul answers that question too in Romans 11. God forbid that he cast away his people whom he foreknew, and that all of those gracious deeds go for nothing. For he saved the remnant according to the election of grace. The love shown to that nation and the grace was a love and a grace personally for the elect remnant around Christ in her midst. And then God saved. But there is a warning in this for the church today. Scripture's own warning. Romans 11 verses 20 through 22. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, Thou also shalt be cut off, cut off in the generations of the visible church that despises his goodness, cut off as an apostatizing church. Oh, let us heed the warning of the word of God. Let us love this Savior God who has been rich in his goodness to us. Show that love by life of friendship and service in the holiness of our lives expressed in obedience to all of the commandments of his law. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, let him that is wise hear what thy Spirit says to us tonight. Give us that wisdom and grant, O God of grace, that we may not mock at and ridicule the examples of holiness, nor silence the preaching of thy word, but see the sign and receive the word as the way of life. For Christ's sake, amen.